We've now witnessed two devastating waves of the COVID-19 pandemic. For those of us in India and indeed in several other regions across the world, haunting images of patients waiting outside hospitals and family members struggling to find a bed for their loved ones may not have even faded from memory yet. The severity of the pandemic has been popularly understood and widely reported in terms of the shortage of hospital beds that we saw and long queues outside hospitals and the struggle that loved ones couldn't get emergency medicine or that even the families were struggling to procure oxygen. To avoid a repeat of this tragic crisis, what are important lessons from this experience? How might we be better prepared for the future? To discuss this in detail, we're joined by Dr. Nachket Moore, an economist and public health expert. Dr. Moore has a PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania. His current work is principally focused on the design of national and regional health systems. He was a member of the Planning Commission's high-level expert group on universal healthcare, the primary care task force of the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare, the Health Commission for the State of Himachal Pradesh, and the Task Force on Global Health at the Academy of Medicine in Washington, D.C. He helped create a new model for comprehensive primary care, pioneered by Sugavarvar Healthcare in remote and rural parts of Tamil Nadu. He is currently a visiting scientist at the Banyan Academy of Leadership in Mental Health and a senior research fellow at the Center for IT and Public Policy at IIIT Bangalore. Welcome to Technology Together, a podcast from IIIT Bangalore that dives headfirst into the complex world of digital technologies. On this podcast, we critically engage with the social, political, and cultural factors that shape the design and utility of digital tech. After a short break, we're back with season two of the podcast. This season will be a mini-series of five episodes focused on COVID-19, where we bring to you engaging critical discussions on the many ways in which digital technologies have shaped our lives during this past year. We will be joined by experts in information systems, economics, law, public policy, and public health to reflect on the role that technology has played during the pandemic. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Moore, on this episode. To get started, in some of your writing over the past year, especially on the pandemic, you argue that there is a need to look beyond hospitals to deal with the COVID crisis. Perhaps today we could begin by discussing why this is important. Thank you very much uh, for having me here. I'm certainly uh, very happy to talk about whatever I know about the uh, COVID-19 response, both in the past as well as in the future. But anybody listening to this should bear in mind that I'm not a medical doctor. I'm an economist, so uh, nothing I say should be intended and interpreted as a recommendation or a prescription for medical treatment. The question you asked was, in my work, I have emphasized repeatedly uh, the importance of starting early. We know from the experiences of the Italians in March 2020 that a hospital-based strategy in which at the first sign of trouble, you ask patients to show up at hospitals was likely not to work. Because from whatever we understand approximately, while 80% of people are asymptomatic and they recover, they may not even know they have disease. 20% of the people do experience one or the other symptom. And if all of them show up at a hospital, no hospital system in the world will be able to cope. So it's not in part the problem in India, as you described, was that we had insufficient hospital capacity. But I would say that was less of a problem. In fact, most analyses will tell you that India has a reasonable amount of hospital capacity, certainly in urban areas. 
you go to rural and such like, you may have a bigger issue. The reason I believe we got overwhelmed despite that was because we didn't follow the guidance that the Italians had given us. And we got people to go directly to hospitals. It led to a number of issues. A, hospitals got full very quickly. B, because they got full people who needed oxygen therapy, but couldn't get it outside of hospital settings, waited. And we know from this disease that waiting is quite harmful because it hurts the ability of the body to respond to the disease much more quickly. And of course, third, which was perhaps almost as devastating. So those who truly needed advanced hospitalization, ventilators and such like, couldn't get access to it because the beds were simply not available. So in some ways, you ended up helping far fewer people than you needed to. So as an alternative to this kind of a hospital-centric approach to healthcare, you recommend working with primary care providers. Could you perhaps tell us who are the primary care providers and how do we develop a primary care provider or PCP-led pandemic response? This is a disease that is very infectious. And we know from the variants that have emerged that the rates of infection, what they call R0, as it were, has gone up since the early days of the virus, which means you're likely to experience a very large number of people that are infected, not necessarily a very tiny group like in some of the other diseases that you see, which may have a high mortality, but don't spread as quickly or need fluid exchange or other things to happen in order for the disease to transmit. The thought in my work or in my writing, um, because my, the ideas are not at all original ideas of mine, what I tried to emphasize was that close to where the patients are, you needed the ability to start to work with them very quickly. What the actual provider was is actually depends on state to state, region to region. In many parts of the country, you have actually a well-functioning government primary care you know, what we call the sub-health center. Uh, in many parts of the country actually functions well. There are midwives, nurses, doctors available. In other parts of the country, perhaps that doesn't work so well, but there are private providers that one could turn to that are present in those areas. Pharmacists, clinics, nursing homes uh, that one could turn to. And third, what many people did was set up temporary capacity in order to respond to the disease the so-called COVID care centers or temporary isolation capabilities. So you had a lot of infrastructure training people to actually serve and to look after people in the early, what they call the mild to moderate stage mm -hmm. is not very complex. In order to put people on an oxygen concentrator, you need about 20 minutes of training. And people at home were given this training. Senior citizens use these machines at home. If you wanted to give prophylactic medicines against clotting, heparin can be administered subcutaneous. So you didn't really need to worry about getting an IV drip and all that. Of course, you needed to think about diabetes. You needed to think about what was going on with sugar control. But again, things that can be done in actually fairly primary care settings, in fact, in homes of people. So that's what I meant, that equipping somewhere near three to five lakh such centers does two things for us. One, it allows us to respond to COVID because now with every oxygen concentrator that we have put up, one, two, three people can be served. And imagine five lakh such beds into three, that's 15 lakh beds. So the scale of infection that you saw, you could mount a good response. And you also end up strengthening the primary care infrastructure because the same equipment 
and the same personnel can tomorrow serve people with COPD, with cardiac issues, with premature babies. There's a whole host of conditions in which this kind of equipment, this kind of training can prove to be useful. Right. And one of the things that you also point out in your writing is that this is a strategy that's specifically useful in lower and middle income countries. Could you tell us why this is important as a strategy specifically in such regions? There are two things it benefits from that low and middle income countries have. One, we do have a lot of people and personnel that can be trained relatively easily to provide these services. We already have 200,000 oxygen nurse midwives, for example. We have a very large number of Anganwadi workers, over a million of them. There are a million pharmacies. There are almost an equal number of primary care providers. This distributed capacity, in some ways, is one of our strengths. And by activating this capacity, by making sure that you're deploying not just the pulmonologists and the cardiologists, because there we have shortages, there we have a challenge. That's not our strength. But the availability of this is our strength. We also now have a good communication infrastructure, reasonably good mobile phone infrastructure. So delivering training, making sure that you're able to deliver guidance to people, what protocols needs to be used, again, is a capability of us. When an organization that I was associated with, I still am as a board member, called the Swast Digital Health Foundation, decided to get into actually offering oxygen concentrators to remote areas of the country. And they did more than 25,000 of them across the country. The benefit of our roads to get these machines to those locations was immediately visible because within days of the thing arriving in Delhi airport or Bombay airport, you could get them to Sarguja, to Bastar, to extremely remote areas. Again, one of our strengths. Financial resources is not our strength, right? But these machines don't cost very much. You know, the oxygen concentrator is at a bulk rate somewhere between 35 to 40,000 rupees. In order to equip the whole country with a machine of this type, my estimate was you wouldn't need more than 1,000 crores. Private philanthropy was able to raise money that was comparable to what was totally required. If government had stepped in, one could have easily done this number a long time ago. So these were... The reasons why I felt in a country like ours, this was a very good strategy to follow. Right. So now that you've shown us that in a country like India, the infrastructure to support this model of care exists, have we seen evidence in India or elsewhere where this strategy played out very well, perhaps during the COVID second wave or even earlier during the pandemic early months? So you saw in other countries, east of India, Laos, Vietnam, Thailand, version of the study. They have high infection loads in the second wave, but they're able to respond quickly because they have built out distributed capability to respond to this disease. When and if the vaccine supply improves around the world, their ability to vaccinate their people also is linked to this because it's the same infrastructure that will take you to get the people vaccinated. In India, you saw a lot more, um, I would say, focused examples. So, for example, in rural Udaipur, there's an organization called Basic Healthcare Services. They rolled out very early. In fact, they were the ones that Dr. Pavitra Mohan, who is the founder and CEO of that organization, was the one that originally started to talk about this idea early into the first wave of this pandemic. There is Dr. Sata in Melghat in rural Amrauti in Maharashtra. Again, you know, his is a somewhat more hospital-centric strategy, but again, early use of oxygen, early response uh, to patients was something uh, he emphasized quite a bit. So you saw several efforts around the country in place. Unfortunately for us, the larger effort 
of thousands of machines. As I mentioned to you, one of the efforts I was involved with, they did about 25,000 plus machines. That started to become active only, I would say, in the middle of the second wave. So while they did save some lives, you did see them being deployed. Perhaps it was somewhat later than we would have liked. But also government guidelines continued to be hospital-centric. For example, even today, if you look at the government guidelines, it says that if you have even early stages of hypoxia, you should be rushed to the hospital. I'm so sorry, sir. I was just going... I don't have a good understanding of what is guiding that production of that guideline. Was that your question? Yes. As to why, why do we see this? Yes. I don't have a full understanding, but I would say it is coming from a good place. Because if you're a doctor, a pulmonologist, experiencing hypoxia, what is the best place to treat them? Well, you would say naturally bring them to the hospital because if they start to decompensate further, I want to be able to move them quickly to advanced level care. So in a patient by patient, a doctor-oriented strategy, I think it makes sense. And this is what exactly the issue that the Italians want us about. They said, we can't take this approach to this disease. You have to take a public health approach. You can't say, because if you have two patients, this is the exactly the right strategy. But if you have 2 million patients, this is exactly the wrong strategy. I think that transition from a patient-centric, individual patient-centric to a public health strategy, I don't think was made very well. And why would I point out our deficiencies around the world? We saw this. New York ran out of hospital capacity. Madrid ran out of hospital capacity. You might argue, how come they didn't fully acknowledge the reality of what this disease is? I don't know. As I said, you know, the evidence seems to be pretty clear that there was a different path. It was pretty clear early in the pandemic, well before it had hit India. There are lots of longer term benefits to following that public health strategy. For some reason, it didn't come together. I think that's very useful to understand how the transition across several parts of the world from a individual patient-centric care to a more of a public health-oriented care, that kind of a transition happened. So as you mentioned earlier, during a pandemic, typically your inf- the infection is spreading very swiftly through the population, leading to a high caseload within a short period of time. So here, as you point out, the primary care would be very critical so that the hospitals don't get overwhelmed for the cases that truly require immediate hospitalization. But beyond the pandemic, do you see value in the primary care-led model, even for regular healthcare needs? No, definitely. If you look at good health systems today, the very best, in fact, not just build primary care, they inform their people that unless you have consulted a primary care doctor and he or she has recommended that you go to the hospital, you can't go to the hospital. It's called gatekeeping. So not only is primary care in those situations, important, but you can't even bypass it. In some other work I was doing, I was comparing France and Germany, very similar countries. But France has better health outcomes, 10 to 15% better, and spends less money than Germany, 10 to 15% less money. And I was curious why, because both are very similar countries in terms of demographics, profile, age, etc. The one difference I found between the two was in Germany, you need not go to a primary care doctor if you don't want. You can go straight to the hospital. Very much like what we do in India. Little sore throat, I'll go to an ENT doctor. In France, you're not allowed to do that. You have to go to the primary care doctor only if she recommends 
that you need hospital care are you permitted to go to the hospital otherwise you can't get the care within the french national health system so primary care today and you know with technology things are changing actually quite rapidly the primary care doctor the primary care nurse the primary care auxiliary nurse can do a whole lot more than even 10 years ago a highly trained doctor could you can deal with many non communicable diseases you can deal with diabetes you can deal with dyslipidemia you can deal with hypertension but not just that you can start to do early work on cancer you can start to worry about diseases such as copd which need oxygen by the way you can start to worry about osteoporosis another disease that is a long term disease but you need to identify early the eye area a lot of work is possible in primary care now with machine learning image processing there is a whole lot that can be done also in india in some ways we have gone once again i fear a little bit in a direction different from what i would imagine is the what we economists like to call the first best direction right which is we have seen telemedicine as another way to bypass primary care to straight away call a specialist who may be sitting somewhere far away and get a consultation i believe the best use of telemedicine is not for the patient but for the primary care doctor right i know how to deal with covid i know how to deal with pregnancy but if i get a pregnant mother with covid i don't know what to do right again telemedicine allows me to access a secondary care specialist and to do more with that specialist and to then understand how to work with the patient to address the problem that i have so in a reverse way as well in the last wave and in the current one there were many companies that were able to do tele icu tele stroke because you can get a good mbbs doctor even in a remote town but you can't get a specialist you don't know how to manage all the equipment that is needed to monitor a patient you can buy the equipment but you don't know how to use it. again technology can play an enormous role in making some of that happen right and i think it's very relevant that you brought in the role of technology which was going to be my next question how do you see the role of technology being adapted and fitted into this design of pcp led care and what kind of things do you feel techno- i i know you've hinted at some of these cases just now so but just drawing on that what is the role that you feel technology could play in this model okay i think technology can be used to fundamentally reimagine what we are doing what current attempts are doing is whatever we are doing today can i somehow add technology to it let's take training as an example of health workers right the original way of training was i train for maternal child health i train for copd i train for ncds i train for this i train for that so that limits how many conditions i can handle because you know each thing requires month long two months long i was speaking to somebody in the i care arena just i care training day in the year with technology i can turn that on its head and i can say i will not train workers on vertical conditions i will train them to be a good companion of the technology so for example i will train them how to use stethoscopes right so that they can understand what's happening to my body and communicate that information with high fidelity to the technical backing i will spend a lot more time training them on how to deal with patients how to deal with families how to deal with cultures all of those issues because people assume that i put a lot of biomarker indicators and trackers and all of that and suddenly i will have people living fit lives but then you would have no obese doctors because they know that is not good to be obese the reality is each one of us needs guidance needs persuasion needs follow up needs work today a lot of our doctors and health workers are focused on disease training and medicine training maybe a lot of their attention could shift 
to working with people and turn to technology to give them a lot more guidance on how should they go about. In fact, to make a more extreme point, in the UK, the GP, the general physician, is one of the most highly trained general practice doctors. Cancer is so rare that you might not see cancer in 2020. Or if you do see it, you might miss it because you don't see it every day. In yeah. fact, as it turns out, UK GPs under-refer cancer by a pretty significant margin relative to their other counterparts because they're relying on training. Now, with the help of technology, they can be guided much better because the machine can start to analyze a bunch of statistical parameters while you're focused on the patient and signal to you that, sir, this doesn't quite look right. She's had a child later than most people. Her menstrual cycle started later than most people. And we noticed that her aunt had some issue there. The three added together suggests to me, to the machine, that this person may be at risk. Can you talk to this person about getting a scan or getting a blood test? Doctor might not have put these facts together because exactly which statistical parameter kicks in is harder to say. So I think technology allows us to become more ambitious about what primary care can do. You know, in one of my posts, I had uh, used an analogy of a jellyfish versus a barbell. We think of health systems like a jellyfish extend the tentacle out deeply. We have every stage there is some care. And then as a result, because you have extended the tentacle out, even the center is not very strong. It's a bit soft and squishy. Right? It can do some things, it can't do a lot. The thought in my mind is that of a bar where you have a very strong front end, very strong back end, and nothing in the middle, right? Or a very thin connection between the two. Think of that as an optic fiber cable and a road network. So I can do very substantial, ambitious goals I can set for primary care. And then, of course, those people that do need to be moved, because any consultation, any machine learning, I can bring to the front end. I can move them, but then a very small proportion of patients are going outside my system. The rest I'm dealing with right here. Right. I think the analogy kind of perfectly explains how we could reimagine healthcare systems with, with digital technologies having an important role to play in that. And that also brings us to the end of this episode. So Dr. Moore, I want to thank you for making the time for this episode and joining us on the podcast today. And for listeners who are interested in learning more about the PCP-led model of healthcare and some of the other things that Dr. Moore has talked about, we'll be sure to link to some of his work in the description that you will be able to check. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. This is Shravya, your host, signing off, and we will be back soon with another episode exploring how we can shape the vision of technology together.